Welcome to Leftist Reading, a podcast where I'm a leftist and I read things. Today we're continuing our reading of Imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. As with previous weeks, there'll be footnotes and figures called out in the show. You can check in the show notes to see definitely the footnotes, potentially the images being mentioned. If you're not seeing them, your podcast player, whatever you're using, just go to the page for this episode on abnormalmapping.com and you'll see them all listed there. And just like last time, I'm using the short scale of billions, which means that a billion is a thousand million. There are certain parts of the original text that do refer to thousands of millions, but I've just amended those for ease of listening. Without any further delay, let's get started on part three. Chapter three, finance capital and the financial oligarchy. Quote, a steadily increasing proportion of capital in industry writes Hilferding, ceases to belong to the industrialists who employ it. They obtain the use of it only through the medium of the banks, which, in relation to them, represent the owners of the capital. On the other hand, the bank is forced to sink an increasing share of its funds in industry. Thus, to an ever greater degree, the banker is being transformed into an industrial capitalist. The bank capital, i.e. capital in money form, which is thus actually transformed into industrial capital, I call finance capital. Finance capital is capital controlled by banks and employed by industrialists. Footnote 1. End quote. This definition is incomplete insofar as it is silent on one extremely important fact, on the increase of concentration of production and of capital to such an extent that concentration is leading, and has led, to monopoly. But throughout the whole of his work, and particularly in the two chapters preceding the one from which this definition is taken, Hilferding stresses the part played by capitalist monopolies. The concentration of production, the monopolies arising therefrom, the merging or coalescence of the banks with industry. Such is the history of the rise of finance capital, and such is the content of that concept. We now have to describe how, under the general conditions of commodity production and private property, the business operations of capitalist monopolies inevitably lead to the domination of financial oligarchy. It should be noted that German, and not only German, bourgeois scholars like Reiser, Schultz-Gewernitz, Liefmann, and others, are all apologists of imperialism and of finance capital. Instead of revealing the mechanics of the formation of an oligarchy, its methods, the size of its revenues, impeccable and peccable, its connections with parliaments, etc., etc., they obscure or gloss over them. They evade these vexed questions by pompous and vague phrases, appeals to the sense of responsibility of bank directors, by praising the sense of duty of Prussian officials, giving serious study to the petty details of absolutely ridiculous parliamentary bills for the supervision and regulation of monopolies, playing spillikins with theories, like, for example, the following scholarly definition arrived at by Professor Liefman. Quote, Commerce is an occupation, having for its object the collection, storage, and supply of goods. Footnote 2. End quote. From this, it would follow that commerce existed in the time of primitive man, who knew nothing about exchange, and that it will exist under socialism. 
but the monstrous facts concerning the monstrous rule of the financial oligarchy are so glaring that in all capitalist countries, in America, France, and Germany, a whole literature has sprung up, written from the bourgeois point of view, but which, nevertheless, gives a fairly truthful picture and criticism, petty bourgeois, naturally, of this oligarchy. Paramount importance attaches to the holding system, already briefly referred to above. The German economist Heyman, probably the first to call attention to this matter, describes the essence of it in this way, quote, The head of the concern controls the principal company, literally the mother company. The latter reigns over the subsidiary companies, daughter companies, which in their turn control still other subsidiaries, grandchild companies, etc. In this way, it is possible with a comparatively small capital to dominate immense spheres of production. Indeed, if holding 50% of the capital is always sufficient to control a company, the head of the concern needs only 1 million to control 8 million of the second subsidiaries. And if this interlocking is extended, it is possible with 1 million to control 16 million, 32 million, etc. Footnote 3. End quote. As a matter of fact, experience shows that it is sufficient to own 40% of the shares of a company in order to direct its affairs. Footnote 4. Since in practice a number of small scattered shareholders find it impossible to attend general meetings, etc. The democratization of the ownership of shares, from which the bourgeois sophists and opportunists so-called social democrats expect, or say that they expect, the democratization of capital, the strengthening of the role and significance of small-scale production, etc., is in fact one of the ways of increasing the power of the financial oligarchy. Incidentally, this is why in the more advanced or in the older and more experienced capitalist countries, the law allows the issue of shares of smaller denomination. In Germany, the law does not permit the issue of shares less than 1,000 marks denomination, and the magnates of German finance look with an envious eye at Britain, where the issue of one pound shares, equivalent at 20 marks, about 10 rubles, is permitted. Siemens, one of the biggest industrialists and financial kings in Germany, told the Reichstag on June 7th, 1900, that... The one-pound share is the basis of British imperialism. Footnote 5. This merchant has a much deeper and more Marxist understanding of imperialism than a certain disreputable writer who is held to be one of the founders of Russian Marxism and believes that imperialism is a bad habit of a certain nation. But the holding system not only serves enormously to increase the power of the monopolists, it also enables them to resort with impunity to all sorts of shady and dirty tricks to cheat the public. Because formerly the directors of the mother company are not legally responsible for the daughter company, which is supposed to be independent, and through the medium of which they can pull off anything. Here is an example taken from the German Review, Die Bank, for May 1914. Quote, the Spring Steel Company of Kassel was regarded some years ago as being one of the most profitable enterprises in Germany. Through bad management, its dividends fell from 15% to nil. It appears that the board, without consulting the shareholders, 
had loaned 6 million marks to one of its daughter companies, the Hasya Company, which had a nominal capital of only some hundreds of thousands of marks. This commitment, amounting to nearly treble the capital of the mother company, was never mentioned in its balance sheets. This omission was quite legal, and could be hushed up for two whole years because it did not violate any point of company law. The chairman of the supervisory board, who, as the responsible head, had signed the false balance sheets, was, and still is, the president of the Castle Chamber of Commerce. The shareholders only heard of the loan to the Hasya Company long afterwards, when it had been proved to be a mistake. Lenin's note, the writer should put this word in inverted commas. And when the spring steel shares dropped nearly 100% because those in the know were getting rid of them. This typical example of balance sheet jugglery, quite common in joint stock companies, explains why their boards of directors are willing to undertake risky transactions with a far lighter heart than individual businessmen. Modern methods of drawing up balance sheets not only make it possible to conceal the doubtful undertakings from the ordinary shareholder, but also allow the people most concerned to escape the consequence of unsuccessful speculation by selling their shares in time, when the individual businessman risks his own skin in everything he does. The balance sheets of many joint stock companies put us in mind of the palimpsests of the Middle Ages, from which the visible inscription had first to be erased in order to discover beneath it another inscription, giving the real meaning of the document. Palimpsests are parchment documents from which the original inscription has been erased and another inscription imposed. The simplest and therefore most common procedure for making balance sheets indecipherable is to divide a single business into several parts, by setting up daughter companies or by annexing them. The advantages of this system for various purposes, legal and illegal, are so evident that big companies which do not employ it are quite the exception. Footnote 6. End quote. As an example of a huge monopolist company that extensively employs this system, the author quotes the famous General Electric Company, the AEG, to which I shall refer again later on. In 1912, it was calculated that this company held shares in 175 to 200 other companies, dominating them, of course, and thus controlling a total capital of about 1.5 billion marks. Footnote 7. None of the rules of control, the publication of balance sheets, the drawing up of balance sheets according to a definite form, the public auditing of accounts, etc., the things which well-intentioned professors and officials, that is, those imbued with the good intention of defending and prettifying capitalism, discourse to the public are of any avail, for private property is sacred, and no one can be prohibited from buying, selling, exchanging, or hypothecating shares, etc. The extent to which this holding system has developed in the big Russian banks may be judged by the figures given by E. Agalid, who for 15 years was an official of the Russo-Chinese Bank, and who, in May 1914, published a book, not altogether correctly entitled, Big Banks and the World Market. Footnote 8. The author divides the big Russian banks into two main groups, A. Banks that come under the holding system, and B. Independent banks. 
Independence, however, being arbitrarily taken to mean independence of foreign banks. The author divides this first group into three subgroups. One, German holdings, two, British holdings, and three, French holdings. Having in view the holdings and domination of the big foreign banks of the particular country mentioned. The author divides the capital of the banks into productively invested capital, industrial and commercial undertakings, and speculatively invested capital, in stock exchange and financial operations. Assuming from his petty bourgeois reformist point of view that it is possible under capitalism to separate the first form of investment from the second, and to abolish the second form. Here are the figures he supplies. Figure 1. Comparing the total amounts of assets for banks that are classified under the holding system or as independent. According to these figures, of the approximately 4 billion rubles making up the working capital of the big banks, more than three-fourths, more than three billion, belonged to banks which in reality were only daughter companies of foreign banks, and chiefly of Paris banks. The famous trio, Union Parisienne, Paris et Peba, and Société Générale, and of two Berlin banks, particularly the Deutsche Bank and Discanto Gesellschaft. Two of the biggest Russian banks, the Russian, Russian Bank for Foreign Trade, and the International, St. Petersburg International Commercial Bank, between 1906 and 1912 increased their capital from 44 to 98 million rubles, and their reserves from 15 million to 39 million, employing three-fourths German capital. The first bank belongs to the Berlin Deutsche Bank concern, and the second to the Berlin Discanto Gesellschaft. The worthy Agad is deeply indignant at the majority of the shares being held by the Berlin banks, so that the Russian shareholders are, therefore, powerless. Naturally, the country which exports capital skims the cream. For example, the Berlin Deutsche Bank. Before placing the shares of the Siberian Commercial Bank on the Berlin market, kept them in its portfolio for a whole year, and then sold them at the rate of 193 for 100, that is, at nearly twice their nominal value, earning a profit of nearly 6 million rubles, which Hilferding calls promoter's profits. Our author puts the total capacity of the principal St. Petersburg banks at 8.235 billion rubles, well over 8 billion, and the holdings, or rather the extent to which foreign banks dominated them, he estimated as follows. French banks, 55%. British, 10%. German, 35%. The author calculates that of the total 8.235 billion rubles of functioning capital, 3.687 billion rubles, or over 40%, fall to the share of the Prodigal and Prodomet syndicates, and the syndicates in the oil, metallurgical, and cement industries. Thus, owing to the formation of capitalist monopolies, the merging of bank and industrial capital has also made enormous strides in Russia. Finance capital, concentrated in a few hands and exercising a virtual monopoly, exacts enormous and ever-increasing profits from the floating companies, issue of stock, state loans, etc. Strengthens the domination of the financial oligarchy, and levies tribute upon the whole of society 
for the benefit of monopolists. Here is an example, taken from a multitude of others, of the business methods of the American trusts, quoted by Hilferding. In 1887, Havemeyer founded the Sugar Trust by amalgamating 15 small firms, whose total capital amounted to $6.5 million. Suitably watered, as the Americans say, the capital of the trust was declared to be $50 million. This overcapitalization anticipated the monopoly profits, in the same way as the United States Steel Corporation anticipates its monopoly profits in buying up as many iron ore fields as possible. In fact, the Sugar Trust set up monopoly prices, which secured it profits that could pay 10% dividend on capital, watered sevenfold, or about 70% on the capital actually invested at the time the trust was formed. In 1909, the capital of the Sugar Trust amounted to $90 million. In 22 years, it had increased its capital more than tenfold. In France, the domination of the financial oligarchy, against the financial oligarchy in France, the title of the well-known book by Lysis, the fifth edition of which was published in 1908, assumed a form that was only slightly different. Four of the most powerful banks enjoy, not a relative, but an absolute monopoly in the issue of bonds. In reality, this is a trust of big banks, and monopoly ensures monopoly profits from bond issues. Usually, a borrowing country does not get more than 90% of the sum of the loan. The remaining 10% goes to the banks and other middlemen. The profit made by the banks out of the Russo-Chinese loan of 400 million francs amounted to 8%. Out of the Russian, 1904, loan of 800 million francs, the profit amounted to 10%. And out of the Moroccan, 1904, loan of 62.5 million francs, it amounted to 18.75%. Capitalism, which began its development with petty usury capital, is ending its development with gigantic usury capital. The French, says Lysis, are the usurers of Europe. All the conditions of economic life are being profoundly modified by this transformation of capitalism. With the stationary population and stagnant industry, commerce and shipping, the country can grow rich by usury. 50 persons, representing a capital of 8 million francs, can control 2 billion francs deposited in four banks. The holding system, with which we are already familiar, leads to the same result. One of the biggest banks, the Société Générale, for instance, issues 64,000 bonds for its daughter company, the Egyptian Sugar Refineries. The bonds are issued at 150%, i.e. the bank gains 50 centimes on the franc. The dividends of the new company were found to be fictitious. The public lost from 90 to 100 million francs. One of the directors of the Société Générale was a member of the board of directors of the sugar refineries. It is not surprising that the author is driven to conclusion that, quote, the French Republic is a financial monarchy. It is the complete domination of the financial oligarchy. The latter dominates over the press and the government. Footnote 9. End quote. The extraordinarily high rate of profit obtained from the issue of bonds, which is one of the principal functions of finance capital, plays a very important part in the development and consolidation of the financial oligarchy. Quote, there is not a single business of this type within the country 
that brings in profits even approximately equal to those obtained from the flotation of foreign loans, says Dybank. Footnote 10. No banking operation brings in profits comparable with those obtained from the issue of securities. End quote. According to the German economist, the average annual profits made on the issue of industrial stock were as follows. Figure 2. Showing annual percentages of profits on industrial stocks. Quote, In the 10 years from 1891 to 1900, more than a thousand million marks were earned by issuing German industrial stock. Footnote 11. During periods of industrial boom, the profits of finance capital are immense, but during periods of depression, small and unsigned businesses go out of existence, and the big banks acquire holdings in them by buying them up for a mere song, or participate in profitable schemes for their reconstruction and reorganization. In the reconstruction of undertakings which have been running at a loss, quote, the share capital is written down, that is, Profits are distributed on a smaller capital and continue to be calculated on this smaller basis. Or, if the income has fallen to zero, new capital is called in, which, combined with the old and less remunerative capital, will bring in an adequate return. Incidentally, adds Hilferding, all these reorganizations and reconstructions have a twofold significance for the banks. First, as profitable transactions and secondly, as opportunities for securing control of the companies in difficulties. Footnote 12. End quote. Here is an instance. The Union Mining Company of Dortmund was founded in 1872. Share capital was issued to the amount of nearly 40 million marks, and the market price of the shares rose to 170 after it had paid a 12% dividend for its first year. Finance capital skimmed the cream and earned a trifle of something like 28 million marks. The principal sponsor of this company was that very big German Disconto Gesellschaft, which so successfully attained a capital of 300 million marks. Later, the dividends of the union declined to nil. The shareholders had to consent to a writing down of capital, that is, to losing some of it in order not to lose it all. By a series of reconstructions, more than 73 million marks were written off the books of the union in the course of 30 years. At the present time, the original shareholders of the company possess only 5% of the nominal value of their shares. Footnote 13. But the banks earned something out of every reconstruction. Speculation in land situated in the suburbs of rapidly growing big towns is a particularly profitable operation for finance capital. The monopoly of the banks merges here with the monopoly of ground rent, and with monopoly of the means of communication. Since the rise in the price of land, and the possibility of selling it profitably in lots, etc., is mainly dependent on good means of communication with the centre of the town, and these means of communication are in the hands of large companies, which are connected with these same banks through the holding system, and the distribution of seats on the boards. As a result, we get what the German writer L. Eschwege, a contributor to Die Bank, who has made a special study of real estate, business, and mortgages, etc., calls a bog. Frantic speculation in suburban building lots, collapse of building enterprises like the Berlin firm of Boswell and Mauer, which acquired as much as 100 million marks, 
with the help of the sound and solid Deutsche Bank. The latter, of course, acting through the holding system, i.e. secretly, behind the scenes, and got out of it with a loss of only 12 million marks. Then the ruin of small proprietors and of workers who gotten, who get nothing from the fictitious building firms, fraudulent deals with the honest Berlin police, and administration for the purpose of gaining control of the issue of cadastral certificates, building licenses, etc., etc. Footnote 14. American ethics, which the European professors and well-meaning bourgeois so hypocritically deplore, have, in the age of finance capital, become the ethics of literally every large city in any country. At the beginning of 1914, there was talk in Berlin of the formation of a transport trust, i.e. of establishing community of interests, between the three Berlin transport undertakings, the City Electric Railway, the Tramway Company, and the Omnibus Company. Quote, We have been aware, wrote Dabang, that this plan was contemplated ever since it became known that the majority of the shares in the bus company had been acquired by the other two transport companies. We may fully believe that those who are pursuing this aim, when they say that by uniting the transport services, they will secure economies, part of which will in time benefit the public. But the question is complicated by the fact that, behind the transport trust that is being formed are the banks, which, if they desire, can subordinate the means of transportation which they have monopolized, to the interest of their real estate business. To be convinced of the reasonableness of such a conjecture, we need only recall that the interests of the big banks that encouraged the formation of the electric railway company were already involved in it at the time the company was formed. That is to say, the interests of this transport undertaking were interlocked with the real estate interests. The point is that the eastern line of this railway was to run across land which this bank sold at an enormous profit for itself, and for several partners in the transactions, when it became certain the line was to be laid down. Footnote 15. End quote. A monopoly, once it is formed and controls thousands of millions, inevitably penetrates into every sphere of public life, regardless of the form of government and all other details. In German economic literature, one usually comes across obsequious praise of the integrity of the Prussian bureaucracy, and allusions to the French Panama scandal and to political corruption in America. But the fact is that even bourgeois literature devoted to German banking matters constantly has to go far beyond the feel of purely banking operations. It speaks, for instance, about the attraction of the banks in reference to the increasing frequency with which public officials take employment with the banks, as follows. How about the integrity of a state official, who in his innermost heart is aspiring to a soft job in the Berenstrasse, the Berlin Street where the head office of the Deutsche Bank is situated? Footnote 16. In 1909, the publisher of Die Bank, Alfred Landsberg, wrote an article entitled the economic significance of Byzantinism, in which he incidentally referred to Wilhelm II's tour of Palestine, and to the immediate result of this journey, the construction of the new Baghdad railway, the fatal great product of German enterprise, which is more responsible for the encirclement than all our political blunders put together. Footnote 17. By encirclement is meant the policy of Edward VII to isolate Germany, 
and surround her with an imperialist anti-German alliance. In 1911, Eschwege, the contributor to this same magazine to whom I have already referred, wrote an article entitled Plutocracy and Bureaucracy, in which he exposed, for example, the case of a German official named Fulker, who was a zealous member of the cartel committee and who, it turned out some time later, obtained a lucrative post in the biggest cartel, the Steel Syndicate. Similar cases, by no means casual, forced this bourgeois author to admit that, quote, the economic liberty guaranteed by the German constitution has become, in many departments of economic life, a meaningless phrase, and that under the existing rule of the plutocracy, even the wildest political liberty cannot save us from being converted into a nation of unfree people. Footnote 18. End quote. As for Russia, I shall confine myself to one example. Some years ago, all the newspapers announced that Davidov, the director of the credit department of the treasury, had resigned his post to take employment with a certain big bank at a salary which, according to the contract, would total over 1 million rubles in the course of several years. The credit department is an institution, the function of which is to coordinate the activities of all the credit institutions of the country, and grant subsidies to banks in St. Petersburg and Moscow, amounting to between 800 and 1,000 million rubles. Footnote 19. It is characteristic of capitalism in general that the ownership of capital is separated from the application of capital to production, that money capital is separated from industrial or productive capital, and that the rentier, who lives entirely on income obtained from money capital, is separated from the entrepreneur, and from all who are directly concerned in the management of capital. Imperialism, or the domination of finance capital, is that highest stage of capitalism in which this separation reaches vast proportions. The supremacy of finance capital over all other forms of capital means the predominance of the rentier and of the financial oligarchy. It means that a small number of financially powerful states stand out among all the rest. The extent to which this process is going on may be judged from the statistics on emissions, i.e. the issue of all kinds of securities. In the Bulletin of the International Statistical Institute, A. Neymark, footnote 20, has published very comprehensive, complete, and comparative figures covering the issue of securities all over the world, which have been repeatedly quoted in part in economic literature. The following are the totals he gives for four decades. Figure 3, showing the total securities issued for each decade from 1870 to 1910. In the 1870s, the total amount of issues for the whole world was high owing particularly to the loans floated in connection with the Franco-Prussian War and the company promotion boom, which set in in Germany after the war. On the whole, the increase was relatively not very rapid during the three last decades of the 19th century, and only in the first 10 years of the 20th century is an enormous increase of almost 100% to be observed. Thus, the beginning of the 20th century marks the turning point, not only in the growth of monopolies, cartels, syndicates, trusts, of which we have already spoken, but also in the growth of finance capital. Neymark estimates that the total amount of issued securities current in the world in 1910 at about 815 billion francs. Deducting from the sum amounts which might have been duplicated, he reduces the total to 575 to 600 billion 
which is distributed among the various countries as follows. I take 600 billion. Figure 4, showing total financial securities by country in 1910, with the top four countries, Great Britain, the United States, France, and Germany, being over three times higher each than the next highest country. From these figures, we at once see standing out in sharp relief four of the richest capitalist countries, each of which holds securities to amounts ranging approximately from 100 to 150 billion francs. Of these four countries, two, Britain and France, are the oldest capitalist countries, and, as we shall see, possess the most colonies. The other two, the United States and Germany, are capitalist countries leading in the rapidity of development and the degree of extension of capitalist monopolies in industry. Together, these four countries own 479 billion francs, that is, nearly 80% of the world's finance capital. In one way or another, nearly the whole of the rest of the world is more or less the debtor to and tributary of these international banker countries, these four pillars of world finance capital. It is particularly important to examine the part which the export of capital plays in creating the international network of dependence on and connections of finance capital. This concludes our third reading from Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. I will once again apologize that I'm certain with the amount of things I have to pronounce in multiple different European countries, I'm sure I'm getting some stuff wrong. If you do have corrections, or as well as any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can email leftistreading at gmail.com, or contact the show on Twitter at leftistreading. The podcast is hosted on the Abnormal Mapping Network. You can check out abnormalmapping.com to find lots of other leftist podcasts about movies, books, video games, and anime. The intro and outro music is Decisions by Eric Medias. You can find it and more of his work at soundimage.org. That's all for this week. Thank you for listening, and keep reading.